Psalm 127. This is a song of ascent of Solomon. Unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from Yahweh, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Or you could also translate that as when he contends with his enemies in the gate. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This is something we can trust, that when we read it with an open heart, on a heart of faith, it will not be in vain. That this reading and hearing and processing and applying your word by your Holy Spirit's power will not return to you void or in vain or without accomplishing the purpose for which you sent it, which is to transform us, to make us people more thankful and more significant in our lives, that what we work on and how we protect what we have built and the people we love, the relationships we have, that those would be eternally significant and redeemed by your power. So now we ask that your word would transform us into people who do not live in vain, but we live for the sake of eternity, for the sake of something greater than ourselves. We love you and we thank you for giving us this opportunity now to be changed and to be taught and to be humbled once again, be filled with your grace. And it's in your gracious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So here we are in Psalm 127. It's the second uh, psalm of ascent that we're looking at. The psalms of ascent are 15 psalms in the book of Psalms. 15 psalms which describe the, the pilgrim's path upward to Jerusalem, to the holy city. There were probably people coming from exile who were far from home, and now they're returning to their home, to the place where God's temple was, where they could worship God in this place called Mount Zion, the temple of the Lord, Jerusalem. And these are songs given not for people who are just spiritual tourists, who just want to come dabble or visit in the religion of Yahweh. These are for people who are pilgrims, who are the people of God traveling in the weariness of life, walking by His Spirit, and sometimes it takes late nights and early mornings to get the job done. And these people are tired. And these people are worried because they see their children that they're raising in a, in a world full of evil. And they say, what will become of them? And God says, these are, these are your songs. These are for my weary people who still have hope and lift their eyes up to the hill, to Mount Zion, where I am enthroned. And your help will come from here. And I will bless you if you build your life and your relationships on me. It will not be in vain. Amen? So this psalm that we're looking at, Psalm 127, is about finding significance and security in your work and in your relationships. It's about how to create a life of lasting value. It's about the fact that God is at the center, as we say, Jesus at the center. God is at the center of life, and so work is ultimately worthless unless done 
with Christ at the center. You could say it another way. What we create with our hands and our, with our work is restless. Our work will be restless. And once we've created it, what we try to conserve and preserve and keep and protect and secure, that will be pointless if it's not God at the center. But if God is at the center, if we, if we rely on God and if we reckon that he is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the source and the goal of our life, if that's how we live, then God promises us that work will be significant and secure and that your relationships will be redeemed. They'll be worthwhile, not just for now and for here, but for eternity as well. So another way you can say this is Psalm 127 is written to convert warriors into warriors. Or you could say to convert people who are practical atheists. I know most of you probably believe in God today, but sometimes we live as if there is no God. We worry so much. We try so hard to do it on our own and not according to God's will. And so we practically are atheists. And he says, I'm giving you Psalm 127 for all of you who forget that I'm in charge and that I've got this covered. And I'm giving you this so that you can now become courageous, creative, Christ-centered Communities, which are called churches. Okay, so he wants our church to be courageous, creative, to work with him and to work with each other to build his kingdom here for the kingdom to come is surely on its way. Now, let's look at the author of this and just talk about him for a minute. Got to get that out of the way because got some problems with Solomon. Solomon, the king of Israel, second king after, I'm sorry, the third king after Saul, then there was David, and then David's son, Solomon. He's the one that wrote this. And we know, uh, even in the psalm itself, Solomon left somewhat of a fingerprint when he says, in verse 2, he gives to his beloved sleep. God gives sleep to the people he loves. Well, that word beloved is the Hebrew word Jedidiah, which is Solomon's nickname that God gave him in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So a little hint here. There's a little fingerprint on there for us. Hey, I'm God's beloved. Let me tell you some insights of what God has taught me. The problem, though, when we read about Solomon and his wisdom is we see that Solomon was a builder. He built a house. And he built the Lord's house in Jerusalem, the temple, that the people are ascending to in the Psalms of the Fed. That's where they're going, the place that Solomon built. But there was some vanity to that. And he built his own palace as well, his own home, his kingly palace. He, he built the, the house of the Lord in seven years and took 14 for his own palace. But all that time, 21 years, at the end, what was it worth? The Babylonians came like a wrecking ball, and destroyed the Jerusalem temple. Why? Because of idolatry and sin that Solomon had himself helped start in his own life. His heart was divided. It wasn't fully God's, and so the kingdom was divided eventually. So his, his temple, his, his building plans, his, his kingdom proud and literally, uh, literally full of gold and glitter, his kingdom fell because his pride was too great and his trust was not great enough in the Lord. And his marriage and children, if you, if you read Solomon's writing about children being inherited, his marriage and his children were a disaster. It was like a circuit. You know, that happens when you have a thousand wives and concubines, you know. That's what Solomon had. It was hard to keep up with everybody. It's like a circus. It was not the covenantal circle of love and faithfulness that God describes, which Solomon does write about. But we have to remember Solomon is a man that was very, very wise, but also he was foolish. And he tells us. This is a warning, like he did in, this, in the Proverbs and in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now he's telling us in Psalm 127, I'm going to warn you how to not live a stupid life. How to not live a life of folly or vanity or worthlessness. Okay? I want you to live a wise life. Something solid, trusting in the Lord that he will build your life. Secure and significant. He'll build your relationships like that too. So 
Listen to me. Don't do as I do, but do as I say. I think it's appropriate for Solomon. Okay? And looking to Jesus, the greater Solomon, for the perfect example of what Solomon teaches us today. Speaking of building and families in the same text, a lot of folks think that this psalm is not one original psalm in the, you know, its earliest stages, that it's two, because it's kind of different. You know, building and watching a city and all that. And then all of a sudden, verse 3 talks about children and the heritage. And some people say, this must be two different psalms. They were kind of like smashed together and glued together, and it's literally falling apart. And we don't think this was really Solomon who wrote it and all that uh, junk. Anyway, um, I mean, so all that, all that academic um, reasoning. And so what I see is I see... Building a house and building a family are virtually synonymous in the Bible. Remember what King David said, I want to build you a house, God, I'm going to build that temple. And he said, no, your son Solomon's going to build the temple, but I'm going to build you a house, meaning a family and a legacy that will last even until the Messiah is born, Jesus. So the word house and the word family are really synonymous in the Bible, and we have both here in both halves of the psalm. We also have both Hebrew words for building and sons. You know, those who build according to the Lord are not building in vain. The word for Builders in the Hebrew is bonim. Why am I telling you that? Because it sounds a lot like the word for sons, which is banim. You hear the similarity? Bonim, banim. You think that's just a coincidence? I don't think so, right? It's a nice literary play on words. Build your life and your family on the word of God, and it will not be in vain. That's what he's telling us. Let our Father, our Father God, rule our lives, and everything will go according to his plan. So let's look first at work being this restless, pointless thing that we do if it's not done with God at the center. Literally, the, the psalm begins saying, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It, it's, it's almost like a curse upon those who don't build with God as the foundation. It's almost like he's saying, vanity be upon you if you don't do it this way. It's not the same word used in Ecclesiastes where Solomon says over and over, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. It's the same idea but it's more of a curse. Like, if you don't do this, how dumb can you be? You really think that what you build in this life is going to last forever or has eternal significance if it's not done with Jesus at the center of it all? He says all the work, all the building that you do, all the security that you try to provide to protect the things that you've worked so hard for, it's worthless. It's not for the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. So here's a question right off the bat, though. Is non-Christian work, worthless. All the work that you did before you became a Christian, all the work that you do now if you're not a Christian, all the work that your friends and family and co-workers and boss and employees do, is that all worthless? Is God just overseeing a worthless endeavor as the world spins on its axis and people wake up and go to sleep every day doing pointless things? Is that what's really happening? Well, I don't think we should be that harsh. The Bible tells us elsewhere that God is the God who uh, brings rain and sun and and gives food to, to farmers who work, and it doesn't say he only does it for Christians, right? When a non-Christian farmer puts a seed in the ground, often it grows, and sometimes it even does better than the Christian farmer down the block. Or if you're, like, in rural America, like, way down the highway, okay? So, what's the deal with non-Christians and worthless work? Well, I would say it's very important, and there's great value in non-Christians building buildings, raising families, uh, protecting our streets like these watchmen on the walls, Oh, how incredibly important it is that people are putting food on our tables and roofs over our heads and injecting medicine into our bodies that we need that are non-Christians. Praise God for those non-Christians who are working hard and doing His will so that we can all benefit from it. But here's the point. Ultimately, ultimately, why would you save someone's body from dying? Why would you put food on the table when it just goes right out the other end the next day? Why would you put a roof over someone's head 
knowing that one day this is going to collapse as well. Ultimately, it's pointless if God is not at the center of everything we do, whoever we happen to be, Christian or non-Christian. Work and the security of trying to protect our work is worthless. But here's the thing. Work is so important to God. He says the work you do right now, the 9 to 5, the daily grind, it's so important that I'm telling you what you do now can matter forever and ever. That what you do now I'm going to enjoin with significance and spiritual meaning that will be more glorious than you can ever imagine. So it's not that he's saying your work is worthless. He's saying your work is so important to me that I want you to see how long into the future and how deep in my holy mind this can be if you simply put me at the center. Does this make sense? Okay, so let's keep moving on then. I don't want to have to go back and re-explain that again because this will be a very long sermon if I do that. So let's keep moving. Building and protecting what we have in our lives is good. It's God-ordained. Remember the Garden of Eden? that story of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, where God created the world at the beginning, and he made male and female in his image. Stop right there. What do we know about God in Genesis 1 when he tells us that he made us in his image? People are stuffed by this. They're like, wow, this is a deep thing. It is. But what do we know about God? There's one thing we know. When we're made his image, what do we know about him so far? Only one thing, really. What's the one thing we knew about God in Genesis 1 so far? First page of Scripture. Do you know that he's a redeemer? No. Do you know that he's a father? No. He's a creator. And so we're made in his image. The first thing you should think is we're made to be creative and builders. This is in our DNA. It's in our divinely designed purpose in life. We are workers. Our God made the world. That was his work. He made us. We're his work. And he made us to work. Work is good. Not a burden. It's not shameful. It's not bad in the beginning. Once sin comes, yes, the ground became full of thorns and thistles, and, and the food would come out of the ground by the sweat of the brow. But in the beginning, work was good. It was God's design. And he even tells Adam and Eve in the beginning, I want you to abad and shamar. These are important words. That's why I'm saying them. Abad and shamar. Abad is the same word you might hear in Arabic when someone says, I am uh, like the servant of somebody. They say, like, I'm, uh, I had a friend in seminary who, whose name meant I'm the servant of, or whatever his name was, abad. The servant, serving. It also can mean worship. See, working and serving God in the Garden of Eden was a form of worship. Abad. Work and worship for me. And then the second word, shamar, means to protect or to keep. So, it's just what Psalm 127 is about. Build something, work, and then keep it, protect it, watch over it, make sure no one steals it from you. That's in our DNA. We are built to be builders and protectors. We're made to work while we worship God and keep what we've done, preserve it, and keep it. It's very important that we see the, the early genesis of our own efforts to work and build, to be creative and conservative at the same time. And I'm not talking about spiritually, or, I mean theologically or politically conservative. I'm talking about conserving the things you've created. I mean protecting them, holding on to them, not letting them slip away. But if you're simply building and conserving things only for the here and now, the food on your table, the money in your pocket, just worldly reasons, if you're simply protecting the city that you live in or the house that you live in simply to preserve your worldly goods, that's what the Bible tells us now is worthless. What's the point of it? If this world is all there is, why work so hard? It's going to all be gone and, and it's going to crumble. It's going to decay. It's going to, be, it's going to evaporate. It's going to be uh, nothingness in the end. But like the Apostle Paul says, if we as Christians 
do not have a resurrection awaiting us with a whole new world and kingdom on the other side, then yes, why in the world would we spend so much time you know, trying to keep the rules, trying to be good Christians, trying to work even for God's glory? What's the point? He says, if there's no resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, you are the most stupid people on the earth. You're the most foolish people. He says, if the resurrection isn't true, he says, I'm an idiot. What am I doing starting new churches and writing scripture? Why am I wasting my life for something that's not true? But he says, if that's the case, why don't we just eat and drink and then be married? That, that simply means like pig out. Yeah, pig out. Turn up and get lit. That's what it means. If there's no resurrection. You know what I'm saying? But Paul says, oh, but we are not people who believe in a lie. Christ is risen. And he is the guarantee of my resurrection. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to work hard. And he says, I'm actually going to work harder than all the other apostles out there by the grace of God. Because I believe in resurrection. I'm going to go at it 100%. I'm going to give all I've got to my work. Because I know that one day that work will be redeemed. It's going to matter. The things I do right now carry forward into eternity. Psalm 127 says there's no other way to live if the resurrection is true. Think about another story in Genesis. Genesis 11. What's the story? We find a Genesis 11 class. Come on, Bible scholars. Don't look it up. You've got to know it off the top of your head or it doesn't count. The Tower of... Yes! Right, it's not the Twin Towers. It's the Tower of Babel. You remember the story? The people get together on that ancient plain of Shinar, in the land of Babel. They, they gather together and said, let's make a tower so tall that it reaches the heavens and then we will be all that in a bag of chips. We're going to be awesome. Nobody's going to be able to touch us. We can even be greater than God. They were saying, let's make a name for ourselves. It's all about me. It's my work, my hands, my power, my wisdom, my cooperation with others. What a great deal. When people come together and work, we can do so many things, can't we? A whole world coming together, a whole nation coming together, a city that comes together and serves. What a beautiful thing. But what a pointless thing if it's not done for the name of God. I mean, we can do so many things together, and what a great thing we can beat that drum, community and society and togetherness and unity, but if it's not done for God's name, he says, I'm going to topple it, I'm going to knock it over. Just like the Tower of Babel, what happened, the people came together, and God said, you're doing what in whose name? I don't think so, and he confused their languages, and that's why we have the name Babel, because they began speaking like blah, 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 and then the building project stopped, and there was no more any Tower of Babel. So we have a great, empty, hollow monument to a man-centered religion that now is just gone. The world knows nothing about this tower that was supposed to be the greatest thing ever. Godless confusion is what resulted in a, a godless work. And that's exactly what's happening today, isn't it? Isn't it? Okay, let me see if I can convince you of that then. Um, people want to be recognized, don't they? People want the world to notice them. That's why we have social media. That's why we spend so much time on it. People want to be at the center. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to put their name above their church or their business or stamp it somewhere where it will be remembered for a long time by millions of people or even billions. They don't even know who they are sometimes, but they're trying to be known. They're confused about the purpose of their life, and yet they want everyone to know about their life. They keep trying to define their identity on anything, anything but God. Now, we can try to define ourselves in various ways. Let me just get the conservative Christian ways out of the way, because you know that I'm going to say these anyway. You know, sexuality, gender, right? Social justice, how about humor? How about 
being a Presbyterian pastor. We can define ourselves on who we are and what we do. It doesn't really have much to do with God or Jesus at the center. How about being a Democrat or Republican? You know, that's my identity. How about being a vegan or an omnivore or being a feminist or being masculine, you know, drinking craft beer? I mean, these are real things people really just want to be defined as this is the type of person I am. What does it have to do with God? I mean, you can drink craft beer to the glory of God, I would say. And certainly you can be a vegan to the glory of God and so many other things, but if he's not the center of your identity, you're confused. Self-promotion is not what God made you for. Life building must, must reach deeper to a deeper foundation. and It must reach higher to a higher heaven than what you can do in yourself. Guarding the city, protecting all that you've built, your name, your reputation, everything, that's worthless if you're simply trying to keep your goodies from getting stolen or from someone stealing your identity, like happened to me this week. Three new credit cards opened in my name. Well, it's like I won the lottery. The problem is I didn't play the lottery. So like, who is this person? Are you in this room who's trying to steal my identity? I mean, this, this is not what I can base my life on, is, is my identity. Obviously, it's not very secure. So what do we build our lives on? God and God alone. My point in life and your purpose in life is to help people find a life they can build on something solid. Protect and, and be a security for people so they can have eternal significance and shalom in God, not just in the here and now. Because the, the psalmist says, unless God builds the house and watches the city, it's in vain. And in, in, in vain you rise up early and go to bed late. Hello, who went to bed late last night? Actually, I didn't go to bed last night late for the first time in many months on a Saturday night. Who woke up early this morning? I definitely woke up early, early this morning. Who got like, you know, less than... Ten hours of sleep this week, you know? It's in vain if, 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 if the Lord isn't behind that. Now, you can stay up late and wake up early and the Lord might be behind it. Great. Do what he tells you to do. Get the work done. But if, if you're working so hard, sweating and bleeding and, and, you know, going, like, ballistic, going bananas, just losing your mind over the work, he says, this is what's called the bread of anxious toil. You're eating the bread of anxious toil. You're biting your fingernails off. You're just so nervous. You're just working like adrenaline and heartburn and all these things define who you are physiologically, God says, it's in vain if I'm not the reason you're working. So make sure that why you're staying up so late, working so hard, is because of God. A reason above the sun, not just below the sun. Below the sun reasoning from Ecclesiastes says, we toil and it's worthless. Vanity, everything's vanity. But above the sun, Solomon says, Work is the greatest thing ever. It's like the gift of God. And there's nothing better than to do your work and to enjoy the food you put on your table, to have a happy family, and to just to go hard in life if you're doing it for God. That's not restless work. That's real work. That's solid, durable work. That's work for God in the best possible way. Now, we think of working for God in different ways, and let me just break down a few of them that are incorrect ways. Okay? First, there's uh, a way that one of our ancient Christian friends named Hilary of Tours described as a blasphemous anxiety trying to do God's work for him. Okay? So here's the anxious bread that we are eating. If we're trying to do God's work for him, I got you, God. I know you're not going to finish what you started. I know that you're not giving me the blessing I deserve, so I'm going to work a little extra hard and do your job for you. Hillary of Tours says that's blasphemous anxiety. Number one, you're kind of making a small deal of God, not putting him at the center. That's blasphemous. Then you're anxious and it's eating you alive. So, here's another way we treat God, kind of like 
We're simply his employees. And he's our employer. Okay, God, you told me what to do. I know I better do it. It's my duty. And if I do it, I'm going to get blessed. And if I don't do it, you're going to curse me and smash me. And so we simply think of ourselves in this wrong way that I'm God's employee. All right? Then we've got the idea that we're doing work that God really can't do himself. Like, we're his hands and feet. And if, if we don't do it, it won't get done. But let me give you a little insight that I've learned over the 42 years of my life. God, is this on? Is this on? God doesn't need you. Let me say it again. God doesn't need you. Okay? God likes you and he loves you and he wants you, but he doesn't need you. He didn't create you because he was lonely or because he was he has hands tied. He's like, what am I going to do in this universe? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll make these people. And then they'll carry on my work that I'm able to do. Not at all. He doesn't need us. Not at all. He gives us work, though, not for any of the reasons I just mentioned, but because... He loves us. Solomon says that in verse three, in verse two, he gives to his beloved sleep. Now you said, but he, you said he gives us work because he loves us. Well, he does. That's what we talked about in Genesis one. He created us and said, now work and keep the garden, and I'm also going to give you rest. So, you know, six days you shall work, and one day you shall do what? Rest. Because I love you, I give you work, and because I love you, I give you rest. I don't need you to work. And I really don't need you to rest. Like, it's not going to hurt my feelings if you don't go to sleep. It's going to hurt your feelings. But I love you. You're my beloved. That's your identity. You're a child of God. You're my handiwork, my creation. So work and rest, as I've told you to do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yahweh, the Lord, says, I command you to work, and I command you to rest. He doesn't just want you to work and rest. He commands you to work. So ask that question right now. Am I working? Am I working? Am I a working person? Am I working hard? And then ask yourself this question. If he commands me to rest, am I obeying his command? Am I finding time to Shabbat, to rest, to have Sabbath? Am I obeying his command to work six days and rest one? Rest God, why do you want me to rest? Why do you command me to rest? So that other people can get ahead of me? So those motivated, driven people at the University of Chicago and downtown Chicago can pass me up? So that the cutthroat people on my job that I just got, they're going to try to pass me up? No, that's not why he wants you to rest, so that you can miss out and be a loser. He wants you to rest so you can have true significance in what you do, and because he loves you. He loves you so much, he says, work and rest. And if God's at the center of your work and your rest, then your work will not be worthless or restless or pointless, it will be so significant and so secure that you'll never taste anything quite like it. Let's look at the second half of the psalm now, briefly. Family. Verses 3 through 5. Family. Here's what I'm going to say about family. Family is fruitless apart from God. But it's redeemed in Christ. Relationships of all sorts are redeemed in Christ. Okay? Now, the work of childbearing is what's mentioned right off the bat here in verse 3. Okay, I've heard some things about this, never experienced it personally, but I've seen it up close and personal, and I know that childbearing is not easy work. That's why they call it labor, right? Now, I can say this from experience. Conceiving children, easy. Conceiving children, easy. I didn't think I'd have to repeat it. Making babies, pretty fun. Easy. That's not hard work. So many people do it so often. Now, I will say this. 
it's not always effortless to make children. We know that. I mean, we know that personally because we thought we were infertile for five years. Thankfully, we adopted our beautiful little girl who's turning 13 on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. Yeah, something to celebrate. Thanksgiving, baby. Thank you, Lord, for Ellie. But we know that sometimes people are infertile, unable, sterile. They, they try to have babies, but it doesn't work. And it is a gift of God when a baby comes. And people try to plan their, they try to map it all out. You know, I'm going to have a baby in three months. We're just, yeah. We said that too. Yeah, then we changed humbly and said it's, it's God's work. But here's the deal. Love doesn't create children. Okay. Love simply loves another person. Hopefully someone you're married to, that's how God told you to do it. That's the way I usually see it working out the best. I've seen a lot of ways it hasn't worked out for people that do it the other way. But you love another person, your husband or your wife, and then God says, come on in and share my love. I want to invite you into this thing I call creativity. I'm going to create a child, and you get to participate. Not hard work for you until the labor part comes and pushing the baby out and then raising the child. That's very hard. Creating is God's job. We simply just enjoy it and celebrate it. We rest in it. It's all a gift of God, though. The, the making the baby, the having the baby, the, the raising the baby, that's all God's gift. That's a beautiful thing. And that's why he says in verse 3, children are a heritage from Yahweh. Heritage means an inheritance, a gift. He's passing on some blessing to you. And it's called a child. And then he says even more specifically, the fruit of the womb is a reward. Fruit of, not, I didn't say fruit of the loom. I said fruit of the womb. All right? And if you don't know what the womb is, of course, it's where the baby is carried, in the mother. The womb has fruit. It's a child. It's a blessing. It's a reward. It's an inheritance. It's a heritage. Now, this is not what our world says today. Family, unfriendly reality that we come across. Okay, let's just stop for a minute and be real about this. What is in that womb in a woman today is not a reward in some people's minds. And we all know that. It's not a treasure. Something to be discarded and trashed is what's in there. The fruit of the womb is an inconvenience. A blob of tissue. Not a blessing, but a burden. Not a reward, but a risk. Did you know that the womb is the most dangerous place in America? Black lives matter. Oh, yes, they do. But only after the third trimester of pregnancy for some people. And I'm not trying to simplify something complicated. I'm just saying, without any condition or caveat, God says children are a heritage and a reward. Period. You're not just matter. You matter to God. You're not just a blob of tissue. You're a blessing. I'm glad you were born, and I'm glad I was born. I'm glad that we have children to celebrate their lives and to raise them, to have a God-centered existence for all of eternity. Here's something family unfriendly a second time. For some of us, we don't have a family that we can really count on, do we? That's another painful reality. You say, oh, children are a blessing. Well, why didn't my mom and dad treat me like I was a blessing? Why was I abused? Why was I abandoned? Why was I treated like second rate? That's true. That happens. And what I want to say to you is that this is true for you too. That God wants you to have a life and a family that matters. Significant. But don't say that God doesn't care about you because of what happened in the past. I, I know he cares about you. He loves you. 
I don't know why he allowed those things to happen. That's his wisdom and not mine. But here you are in a family right now. You're sitting among a family that cares about you. Look me in the eye. Look each other in the eye. I care about you. I want to be family to you. I know what they did was wrong, but we are here to help you. These doors are open. The table is open. We're going to eat a family meal together when we sit down. We're family here. I love what the Statue of Liberty says, and I think if we weren't Christians, we'd probably go steal the plaque at the base of the Statue of Liberty and affix it to our front wall at the front of Living Hope Church. Here's what it says. Give me your tired and your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send those, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. See, the Lord is building his house. And there's a seat for you at the table. And though you feel orphaned, you're welcome here as a child of God. And so building a home and raising kids has to be seen in the context of this God-centered work, this redemptive work. If family itself is the end, if you say, well, my job in life and my goal is to raise kids and to like, make them really great kids and they're going to be the best at what they do and they're going to go change the world, that's great. Being a perfect family would be awesome if it was possible. And raising little amazing top four in the world champion children would be perfect and amazing. That would make life really exciting and fun. But if that's all the point of your life and your family, guess what that's called? Idolatry. You can have the best children and the best family, but if there's no God at the center, it's pointless. It's vanity. It's worthless. So again, Yahweh says, let me build my house. When you raise your family, let me be the father over what you do teaching you how to teach them. When David said to God in 2 Samuel 7, I want to build you a house. I want to build you that golden, splendorous temple that his son Solomon eventually built. God said to David, no, I need to build you a house. I'm going to give you a legacy and a family and a line that will carry on your kingly rule forever through Jesus. Building a house has to happen at God's initiative or it's not eternally worth anything. Here's another family, unfriendly reality. Some people don't or won't ever have children. So what do you do with these last three verses? Jesus said, go make disciples. That's like the, the great commission of Genesis 1 was multiply and have lots of kids. Jesus' great commission didn't say, go have make, make babies. He said, go make disciples. So everybody can celebrate and everybody can participate. Even if you don't have babies or never will, you can still be an influence on someone's life. Someone's life that matters to you. You can care for them and you can train them. You can teach them something important to you and something hopefully God-centered and eternally important as well. Christian parents need help raising their children. And I'm not just talking about a, a shameless plea for babysitting right now. I really am not. I'm not. I'm not doing that right now. What I'm saying is we need help. We need wise people to come alongside of us. We need mentors. We need friends. We need people that are stable and fun and friendly to come to our table to share in the love of our family, to broaden our perspective. Psalm 127 is for converting warriors into what? Warriors. All right? People that just bite their fingernails, working hard day and night, raising their children, trying to protect them from the world and all of its influences. And then at the end, we still need to rest in God. And when we begin to trust God and rest Him at the center and the foundation, we begin to really work. We begin to really go to battle against the things that are really problems in the world. And we teach our children to do the same things. That's why it says in verse 4, children of one view are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Now, how are kids like 
arrows. Just imagine an arrow. What is an arrow like and how does a child resemble an arrow? Well, they're smart as whips usually, right? Sometimes they're pretty sharp, these children, but that's not how. Think about how a warrior chooses his arrow. He, he strips that tree, he breaks the branch. He chooses the, the perfect stick. And if it's not perfect, because they're usually never perfect, then he, he smooths and straightens it, he, he weights it just properly so it will travel perfectly in flight. He spends time carving out and attaching the feathers, and then he binds and wraps the arrowhead onto it, the ancient warrior. And he balances it so that it will fly and hit its mark, its target, without deviating side to side and, and going off course. And this is how children are, right? In the hands of a parent. The child is, is shaped and nurtured and trained, and through over and over repetition, consistency, the child begins to find the mark over and over. And then finally the parent says, I can release this child into the world like an arrow. And it, this child will find his or her mark and do great things and fight good battles and, and do God's mission in the world. And the, the warrior can be confident in these arrows that are in his hands or his quiver. Like the parent can be confident in her children who are around her table Blessed is the person who has many of them, who has an opportunity to share what God has done with biological children or adopted children or church family children or neighborhood children or wherever you can find those little rascals. Go grab some, train them up, and shoot them out into the world to do God's will. And those little children will come back one day when they grow up. They'll be mature, they'll be strong and courageous, and they will defend the city gates alongside of you. And when you're too old, they'll do it for you. They're saying, I cannot get up out of this chair and fight those enemies, but I've got my posse with me. I've got my sons. I've got my church family here. And together we can contend at the gate. That means we can take a stand when evil's trying to rush in, and we can say, enough, right here is where it stops, because we are together in this. We're a community. And it also can mean that there's justice being done at the gate. This speaking to those at the gate means that justice is being served. So when you come against me, against my reputation, you're going to talk about, about me, uh, talk to my kids. Look at how I raised them. Look at how they turned out. And look at my church family. They got my back. See, when I'm old and completely bald, I know I've got the beginnings of that already, but when I'm completely done and I can't do anything else, you guys got my back, right? And I got your back now, as long as i got breath. Let's just wrap this up with talking about responsibility. Responsibility and rest. You're responsible. You're responsible to build the house, to watch the wall, and to raise those kids. That's true. You're not off the hook here. God's not saying, hey, let go and let God. That's actually not a Bible verse. Surprise. <laughs> Surprise there. I know. Yeah, but let go and let God, not in the Bible. And there's a reason. Because you're supposed to work hard. You're responsible. And then in your hard work, you trust God. Don't trust your deadbolt and your call to the 911 dispatcher. Still make the call. I, you know, I was at the police station yesterday filing my report about identity theft. But I'm not trusting the police. Trust me to do anything about it, okay? You feel what I'm saying? Work hard. It's, it's your responsibility to do what this is saying. But don't trust yourself or anyone else in this world. Only trust God to build and to watch and to make these relationships worthwhile. And so when you realize that, then bring the responsibility on is what I say. When God blesses you with responsibility, do a good job of it, and he'll bless you with more. The more things he gives you, the more you're responsible for. It's a blessing. It's tiring to have more responsibilities. It is but he'll give you more grace and more help. That's the feedback loop of responsibility and rest. Do what you're supposed to, God blesses you, and he gives you some more, 